In him, we have redemption through his blood. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It's the death of Jesus, his shed blood, his resurrection, that is the reason, not just that we're here this evening, but that we have eternal life. He is indeed all our hope and peace. Like Drew said, I'll second his wording of welcome back. Um, I would even maybe take it a step deeper and say welcome home. And in a very real sense, the local church should be even more home than our physical houses and and even our immediate families. Of course, ideally, they both come together. Um, So I'm glad with you to be here tonight. I've got some news that is somewhat sad and some news that is encouraging. We have four deacons right now at Desert Springs Church. We'll look to expand that a little bit in the next year. We also use our staff kind of as deacons. Um, I might explain a little bit of that in an upcoming Tuesday email. But one of our deacons, Josh Speakman, and his wife Martha are headed out of town. They'll move out uh, next week to the Austin, Texas area. And not as a replacement for Josh, but in a different area, 
area. Uh, as elders, we appointed a new deacon, Lee Scott, yesterday in our elders meeting. You'll recall that I've mentioned Lee for several weeks now in my Tuesday emails, had nothing but commendation and good comments come back about his work and ministry. So I'll pray for both of those in just a minute. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Josh. Uh, his wife, Martha, has been helping churches across the country financially for many years. Um, Josh used to be a general contractor. In the last 10 or 20 years, he has founded and run a nonprofit, a Christian nonprofit here in Albuquerque, and several years ago agreed uh, voluntarily to head up um, our ministry called DSE Serve, in which we help people in need in our own church as well as people outside of our church, often unbelievers that we have some kind of connection to. Uh, and Josh has done such faithful work in that area. Um, Lee, for a, a long, long time, has been point person for our woodcutting ministry, and that's what he'll keep doing. We're affirming him as a deacon in that area of service. So in the last year, we had a visitor here to DSC that heard the phrase woodcutting ministry, and I'll show you a picture of what they thought we were talking about. <laughs> so this might not be a bad idea, guys whittling away and making little objects, uh, but most of you know the ministry actually is dozens of men and even a number of women that find wood, uh, not always readily available here in New Mexico, they cut the wood, they split the wood, they stack the wood and store it so that it dries, they load it up in pickups and trailers, they transport it several hours to more than one location on the Navajo Res, and they make a point of delivery right up to homes of elderly or single parents or people that don't have electricity and in some cases may have a propane tank uh, in their yard that they can't afford to fill and refill. So we're talking old school, right? We're talking heat in the winter and cooking hot meals over an open flame heated by wood. Uh, so there are very real needs uh, that this group of, again, dozens, many of which I'm looking at now, uh, take time out of their weekend, at least four times a year, uh, to help with. So let me pray for these two uh, and their wives, and I'll ask that you bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we're so thankful for the Speakmans, Josh and Martha. We ask that in the next 10 years, they would look back on those 10 years as, as years of such deep growth and ministry. God, neither one wants to rest and relax. They're both so much involved with people. So bless their hearts and their hands as they continue to minister in just another state and another church and another context. And Father, for Lee and for Brenda, who have spent so much of their lives serving people in need, in this church and outside of this church, continue to strengthen their hands and their hearts in that work. And may we encourage them as they continue to serve our Lord and our Savior, his good and great name, our God, Jesus. In his name, amen. Let us stand and consider the cross. Consider our Savior's love and sacrifice for us. Man of 
Christ alone my hope is found he is my light my strength my song this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when fears are still when striving cease my comforter my all in all here in the love of Christ I family, and it's good to see so many of you together all at once. Our text for tonight is from Jeremiah chapter 25, so if you want to follow along in your Bible, that's where we'll be. We'll also have the words up on the screen. Jeremiah chapter 25 will be in verses 15 all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 38. So Jeremiah 25, 15 to 38. Listen to the word of the Lord. 
Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand, and I made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse, as at this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, all his people, and all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz, and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dedan, Tema, Booz, and all who cut the corners of their hair, all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of Media, all the kings of the earth, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth. And after them, the king of Babylon shall drink. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink and be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. You, therefore, shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high, and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation, and a great tempest is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. And those pierced by the Lord on that day shall extend from one end of the earth to the other. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall be dung on the surface of the ground. Wail, you shepherds, and cry out. And roll in ashes, you lords of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and dispersion have come. And you shall fall like a choice vessel. No refuge will remain for the shepherds, nor escape for the lords of the flock. A voice, the cry of the shepherds, and the wail of the lords of the flock. For the Lord is laying waste their pasture, and the peaceful folds are devastated because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Like a lion, he has left his lair, and their land has become a waste because of the sword of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, this is no less a word for us than any other part of the Bible. 
Lord, in fact, this is a valuable word for us as it helps us to set our hope on the one who died the death that we deserve to die. God, I pray that you would be honored in our time together tonight. I pray that you would lead us all to remember the sacrifice that your son made for us and that he would be praised. Amen. Weird verses, huh? I started thinking about these verses months ago when we were uh, studying the I am statements in the gospel according to John. In the gospels, Jesus a few times makes reference to a cup, a metaphoric cup that he says that he is going to drink. The first mention of this cup is when two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to him and they ask, Lord, when your kingdom comes, can we sit on either side of you at your right hand and at your left? Jesus responds to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am going to drink? Later, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus praying in anguish and in agony. And do you remember what he prays? My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And then in John's account, which we studied several months ago, John gives us a slightly different perspective on Jesus' thoughts in that moment when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus and one of Jesus' disciples tries to fight the captors and keep them away from his Lord. You remember what Jesus says? He stops him and he says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? When we were studying those passages, I just started to think again about this idea of the cup. What does Jesus mean when he's thinking about the cup? Clearly, it's on his mind throughout his earthly ministry. Obviously, in the Gospels, it refers to the crucifixion that he would suffer in just a few hours from the night that he was in the garden. But why does Jesus use that word? Where does that come from, the cup? That's Old Testament Language. In fact, you can find it all over the Bible in places like Psalm 75 or Isaiah 51. And it's most fully developed here in this chapter, Jeremiah 25. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was a prophet that presided over one of the worst, darkest periods in the history of Israel. It was a period of war. There was significant political and social unrest. It was also a period of spiritual and moral decay. Jeremiah repeatedly accuses the Jews of committing spiritual adultery. That's his word, adultery. They have openly been worshiping other gods. They've even set up an idol in the temple in Jerusalem. So the book of Jeremiah, chapters 1, all the way through chapters, chapter 24, is just Jeremiah listing out all of the sins of the people of Judah and begging them to repent. Because he says they have done nothing less than break their covenant with God. It's interesting, there's a phrase in the Old Testament, stubbornness of heart. That phrase occurs ten times in the Bible, and eight of those times are in Jeremiah chapters 1 through 24. Israel has a heart problem. 
Israel has a heart problem, and Jeremiah has been tasked by God with calling them out for it and warning them that God will not sit back idle. He says, God has been patient with you for generations, but he will not be patient forever. Unless they repent soon, God will pour out his punishment on them for their sins. So the first 24 chapters are God building his case against Judah, and then the rest of the book is basically God's patience run out. Chapters 26 through 45 are all God's judgment as they were exacted on Judah. And then chapters 46 through 51 is God's judgment on all of the nations of the earth. So in that structure, right in the middle of Jeremiah is chapter 25. Chapter 25 serves as something like the hinge in the book of Jeremiah or the keystone in the arch. Chapter 25 is where God's patience runs out. And it's where God's judgment begins. And it is a judgment that is described through this metaphor of the cup of God's wrath. And it's that cup that Jesus had on his mind. So that's what we're going to be meditating on briefly tonight is this picture of the cup of God's wrath. And we're going to take it in three parts. Or really, we're going to ask three questions of this text in Jeremiah. So first, in verses 15 to 29, we're going to ask, who must drink the cup? Who must drink the cup? So God does something to Jeremiah that may seem a little strange to us at the start of this section. He tells Jeremiah to take a cup and to go around to all of the nations and to make them drink it. Now this may just be metaphoric language, some kind of vision that Jeremiah is having in his head, but it's probably more likely what we would call an enacted metaphor. That God is actually asking Jeremiah to go around all of these other countries with a cup of wine, telling the rulers of those countries to drink it. That was very common in the prophets for them to do something like that. And what that, that metaphor was representing was the wrath that was deserved for their iniquities. So verse 16, God says, They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. The sword that God is referring to here is the empire of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar, whom God will use, he says in verse 9 of chapter 25, as a servant to devote all of the nations to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. So everything that follows in this section of chapter 25 is really just an account of the historic conquest of the nation of Babylon as it went around and conquered all of these countries in the ancient Near East in the 6th century BC. In verse 18, Jeremiah is told first to take the cup of God's wrath to those who are most culpable, to Jerusalem and to the cities of Judah. And I say that they're most culpable because they should have known better, right? They had God's commandments. They had prophets calling them to repentance and obedience to God's commandments. They had the temple. They had God's covenant. But despite God's long-suffering patience, they refused to repent. They continued to disobey blatantly. And so they would drink the cup of God's wrath. Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians in the year 586 B.C. And the temple was razed. 
Then in verses 19 to 25, Jeremiah takes the cup to all of the other rulers and the other nations around them. And he's just enacting Babylon's conquering of the rest of that region. Egypt, Edom, Tyre, Sidon. Basically, the whole known world was under God's judgment. But why? Why these other nations? They were not in a covenant with God. They did not have God's word. They didn't even have the Ten Commandments to know what rules they weren't supposed to be breaking. Why are they under God's judgment? Well, they were all descended from Adam and Eve. They all had the curse of sin. Whether the law of God was revealing that to them or not, and we know that they all had the same knowledge of the creator God's existence. They all alike had broken the law that was written on every human heart, as Paul says in Romans chapters 1 and 2. And so they were all alike without excuse. They too would drink the cup. The cup doesn't even stop there. Look down at verse 26. God says, Take the cup to all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth. And after them, the king of Babylon shall drink. Even Babylon, God's sovereign instrument of his judgment, will drink the cup of wrath themselves. No one is excluded. Who must drink the cup? Everyone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3. And here's what this is all driving to in Jeremiah. If God says that someone must drink the cup, they will drink the cup. There is no escape. Verses 28 to 29 say, If they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. For behold, I began to work disaster at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished. I am summoning a sword against all of the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. They could refuse Jeremiah's cup, just like you can refuse my voice right now. But they will not refuse the Lord's cup when it comes. So everything that the Lord describes here in this prophetic vision to Jeremiah, it happened. It happened in history, just like God said that it would. All of these nations listed fell to the sword of Babylon. And then even Babylon, which no one could have predicted, the greatest superpower in the history of the world up to that point, just 25 years after Nebuchadnezzar died, they were conquered by the Persians. They drank the cup, just like God said that they would. But just as Jeremiah going around with this cup is a metaphor, picturing the wrath that was going to come to these nations mediated through the nation of Babylon, even their destruction is a metaphor for the unmediated wrath of God that will be poured out on the last day. This vision in Jeremiah 25, it's, it's simultaneously a vision of what happened with the Babylonians, but it's also a vision of the judgment that is just as sure, that is just as certain, that will be deserved by everyone who has disobeyed God's commandments when God comes again to judge the living and the dead. This is made more clear in the next verses, in the next section, verses that answer the question, what is in the cup? Verses 30 to 33. I'm not going to read all of these verses again, but in this section, did you notice how extreme this language was? 
This is describing a military conquest, yes, but this is much more than a military conquest. This is day of the Lord language that Jeremiah is using. There is God's fierce anger. He's roaring like a lion. Can you imagine what that would be like? God shouting. There's a clamor that makes the whole earth shake. God stirs up a tempest, a storm to beat against these nations. The wicked, it says, are pierced by the Lord from one end of the earth to the other. And they are defiled. They're cursed in their death. Notice again in verse 31, all of this is said to be an indictment. The Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh. All of this that's happening, this is, this is a just penalty from a perfect lawgiver. And it's easy to read these verses and to think that God is awful. But God sounds vengeful and mean. But that would be to misdiagnose the problem. It's not that God is awful. It's that our sin is. That's, that's the picture. If you read Jeremiah that the prophet paints throughout the whole book that God is not awful. In fact, God is lovely. And God is loving. God is life-giving and patient. And it's his people. His people that, that he has so patiently loved that hate him, that have cheated on him. The book of Jeremiah begins with something of a thesis statement in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. God says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says that that evil is appalling. It's shocking. Do you view your sin like that? Are you appalled by that? Every time we seek to be satisfied by something or someone other than God, when we try to drink from another fountain, when we try to drink from the, the fountain of success, from man's approval, when we look to someone's approval, like that will satisfy us. When we try to drink from the fountain of sexual pleasure, thinking that'll fill me up. When we try to drink from the fountain of financial gain, from comfort, from selfishness, from dishonesty, from anger, from vanity. That's appalling. It's appalling. Because it's, it's foolish. You know that it is drinking from a, a broken cistern. It doesn't work, does it? But we do it over and over and over again, thinking maybe this time it'll quench my thirst, but it doesn't. But not only that, it's forsaking God. The fountain of living water and your God. It's adultery. And we have all done it, even today. And for that, we must drink the cup. We justly deserve present 
and eternal punishment. Wrath that these verses are trying and failing to describe in human terms. These verses give us an insight into the true terribleness of our own sin and the terribleness of what is in that cup. This cup that we are not able to drink. We would drink that cup, fall down, and rise no more. So who's able to drink the cup? This is the question. Verses 34 to 38. It's notable that that a chapter that has the whole world in its scope concludes by focusing on a very small audience, Judah's shepherds. They're not not literal shepherds, of course. This is describing Judah's leaders. Verse 34 says, Wail, you shepherds, and cry out. Roll in ashes, you lords of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and dispersion have come, and you shall fall like a choice vessel. Time and time again in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet stresses that all of this degradation that has fallen upon this society is the result of the poor leadership of Judah's kings and priests and teachers of the law. These have all become corrupt and they're leading the people astray into sin. And as a result, there has been rampant social injustice and immorality throughout Israel and Judah and the most vulnerable in that society have been taken advantage of and have been harmed because of these leaders. These are like the creepers in the book of Jude that we were looking at. False shepherds who only want to feed themselves. And so the closing verses of this this chapter focus on God's special wrath upon these bad leaders. These shepherds will watch as the little ones whom they were in charge of, whom they could have helped, whom they could have led into paths of righteousness, they'll watch as they're destroyed. And then they themselves will be slaughtered. They too will drink the cup and they will fall, and they will rise no more. It's incredibly tragic. It's a tragic picture. And with that, the chapter ends. And that final note just leaves all of us wishing there was a better shepherd, doesn't it? And that's exactly what we get. The book of Jeremiah It's kind of a downer book. (laughs) We even have a word in English. A Jeremiad describes a long, depressing complaint because that's basically what this book is. But even in the midst of such a dark book, there are just these little glimpses of light, of amazing grace. Grace that that really is heightened, it's highlighted as it stands in contrast to the reality of our own sin and of God's just anger. Okay, that's why this is a good meditation for us tonight because the more we appreciate what we have been saved from, the more we will appreciate the Savior that we have, amen? And hallelujah, what a Savior. Even in this chapter, there's a little glimmer of hope. Babylon will be destroyed. This nation that is going to carry off the the surviving Jews into exile, they won't be there forever. 
The Jews will be disciplined by the Lord and then they will be set free. God will save them. But even more, after he saves them from exile, he's going to give them that good shepherd. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, maybe you can turn there. God says this, Jeremiah 23, 5 to 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. There is a son coming from David, a righteous branch who will save his people. That's a good shepherd. And then in chapter 31 of the book of Jeremiah, I think we get the greatest promise recorded, the greatest glimmer of hope. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, hey, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What a promise. I said maybe the greatest promise in the book of Jeremiah, this might be the greatest promise in the whole Bible because this is a promise of redemption. This is a promise of restoration for God's sinful people and not just restoration in their physical circumstances. We don't hope in this society getting better. We don't hope in princes It's restoration in the area of their greatest need in their stubborn hearts. This is a vision of a new covenant, a new relationship with God as God's people. Can you believe that? God says, you faithless people, all you do is break my covenant. All you do is cheat on me. All you do is forsake me and try to drink from broken cisterns. So here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make a better covenant. One that you can't break. One that will be defined by the opposite of a stubbornness of heart. Instead, it will be defined by true obedience as my word is put in your heart by my Holy Spirit. I'm going to make a new covenant that's not marked by adultery, but by faithfulness. And what's the basis of all of that? Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. All that iniquity that we deserved, 
that we justly deserved, God's terrifying wrath, it will be forgiven. God says, I'm not even going to remember it. How is that possible? Do you, I, sometimes I think we, we talk about the gospel so much, we think about the gospel so much that we can't, we, we, we forget how crazy that tension is. How does that make sense? How can God just inaugurate a new covenant with people that constantly break it? How can God forgive sin when he just said that it deserves earth-shattering judgment? How can God, the God that, that describes his just, terrifying wrath in, sh- in such shocking terms in Jeremiah chapter 25, just make this amazing promise of forgiveness in chapter 31? Because Jesus drank the cup. Jesus drank the cup for us. That's what he came to do. That's what he said to James and John. Hey, there's a cup that I got to drink. I got to drink it for my people. And you're not able to. And Jesus alone knew how bad the cup was. That's why when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says he's, he's sweating drops of blood in agony because he knows how terrifying it is. That's why he prays, God, take this cup from me. But not my will, your will be done. Whatever it takes, God, because I know you love these people. That's why at the Last Supper, when Jesus instituted the meal that we're going to celebrate in just a moment, He took bread and he gave thanks and he broke that bread and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup. He said, this cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant. The new covenant. In my blood. The book of Hebrews says that no covenant is inaugurated without the shedding of blood. This covenant is no different. What Jesus was doing at the Last Supper is he was giving his disciples another enacted metaphor. He was being a prophet. He was giving them a picture of what he was about to do. He was going to give his own body. He was going to shed his own blood as a substitute. He was going to stand in the place and suffer the wrath of God that they deserved. He was giving them a new cup because he was taking that old cup from them and drinking it himself. Think about all of the descriptions of the crucifixion in the Gospels. There's an unnatural darkness that covers the whole land. The earth quakes. Rocks are split. The curtain in the temple was torn in two. There is weeping and loud cries. There are soldiers. Jesus' flesh is pierced. It's a little day of the Lord on the cross. Jeremiah 25. The cup of the wrath of God. And Jesus drank the cup. That cup. He drank it. He staggered. And he fell. And then he rose again. He rose again. He was able. He was able to drink the cup for you in full. He drank it down all the way to the ends. And he says, I still got more. What else you got? There's nothing left. 
everything that Jeremiah described in chapter 25, everything that we deserved, Christ absorbed it all on the cross. He was the good shepherd, amen? He didn't take from his flock so that they would be harmed. He laid down his life for the sheep so that we could drink fully, not from broken cisterns, not from things that will never satisfy us, but from the one who gives us living water so that we would never thirst. He gave himself in the place of everyone, everyone, from every tribe and every tongue and every language and every nation, the whole earth. He gave himself so that anyone who would confess their sins, who would appreciate their sins for what it is, could be forgiven, could be redeemed. That's what we proclaim at the Lord's Supper. That's what we celebrate tonight. When we eat the bread together, we remember that Jesus died in his body, the death that you deserve to die, and that Jesus rose in his body with the same hope of resurrection that all of us have. And when we take the cup, we really remember two cups. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we think about the cup of wrath. We think about what our sin deserved, how appalling it is. And then we think about the cup of peace. We think about the cup of, of a new covenant, of fellowship with our God and fellowship with one another that was inaugurated by Christ's blood. So if you're here tonight, and you haven't believed in Jesus. Maybe you've heard the gospel in your home, or maybe a friend has, has brought you here, but you don't believe this gospel that we're talking about, this good news that our sins are forgiven by the death of Jesus Christ. We are so glad that you're here, but this meal is not for you. This is not the cup that you get to drink tonight. And so as we pass these elements around, or I guess we're not passing them. We walked in and, and picked up these elements. As we take these elements together, as we eat this bread and as we drink this cup, if you don't believe this gospel, then what I'm going to ask you to do is just leave those elements there on the floor. Nobody's going to pay attention to it. It's not going to be awkward, okay? But this, this is a family meal. This is a meal for all of us who, who say what is true about this meal, that Jesus died for me. So when we take this meal together, I'm just going to ask you maybe think about what we've talked about tonight. Consider in your heart that there is a cup of wrath that God has prepared for all of those who have broken his commandments. But being forgiven of your sins is as easy as reaching out and taking this other cup. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. All you have to do is confess your sins and repent and you will be spared. You will be saved and brought into this new relationship, this new covenant. And for all of us who have believed this good news, and it is good news, amen? For all of us that have believed this good news, let's remember what Christ has done for us in this meal. So as I said, when you walked in, you should have grabbed these elements. If not, there's going to be time for you to go grab them out in the foyer before we eat and drink this is going to look a little different tonight. Okay, we're not going to stand up and walk around. We're just going to stay in our seats. Actually, we're going to stay seated the whole time. But what we're going to do is I'm going to pray here in just a second. We will confess our sins again to God. And then Drew is going to lead us in a song. 
as we continue to meditate on this grace that God has shown us in Jesus. Then I will lead us in taking the bread together. Then we'll hear one more song, and then we'll take the juice. Okay? So you just wait for me. I'll tell you when that's going to happen. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, this is such a, a meaningful text as it holds the weight of our sin up before our very eyes. God, maybe even some of us right now are, are feeling, feeling condemned, feeling the weight of that burden, all of our iniquities and, and the wrath that it deserves. God, I thank you for that conviction. We don't want to run away from that. We don't want to, we don't want to pretend like sin is not appalling. It's not adultery. God, we confess. We confess our sins to you. We confess that in our very nature, we're sinful and unclean. God, despite our best efforts, we, we, we just can't help it. God, we feel it coming out of us. We, we have sinned against you in our thoughts. We've sinned against you in our words that we've said to other people. We've sinned against you in our actions. God, we confess that we have sinned against you in the things that we've done, but also in the things that we haven't done. Or maybe the things that we've done with bad motives. Lord, we confess that there have been ways, even this week, even today, where we've sought to drink from broken cisterns and not from the fountain of living waters. Lord, we confess that we have committed spiritual adultery by worshiping false idols. God, we confess right now in our hearts as we take a moment of silence the ways that we have sinned against you. If you were to keep a record of wrongs, who could stand before you? That our sin is ever before us. And we confess it would be right for you to punish us. More right than we know. But God, we remember Jesus. who said that he would take our burdens off of us and onto himself, who bore our iniquities in his own body, who spilled his own blood so that we could be washed, made white as snow. Lord, we remember Jesus and we ask you again, forgive us, renew us, cleanse us, 
sanctify us. Remind us again of your mercy, even right now, that you have forgiven us of our sins and you don't remember them anymore. Lord, we thank you for that hope and we pray that you would set our hope on that even more right now. Amen. Let's consider these words together. Bread of life who gave your body When you on the cross did bleed Satisfy my every longing Quench the thirst of every need Light of a life who shines in darkness Making known throughout the world The glory of your Holy Father Guide me by your perfect word You who are my perfect shepherd Laying down your life for me that I may have life abundance, free to ever follow thee. Lord, you are the resurrection and the life without to save. I believe you are the Christ and you will raise me from.
take out your bread. At one point, all of this was together in one loaf, just as we are one in Christ. That hasn't changed. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. God, we thank you for the body of Jesus, the sinless lamb that was kept blameless in perfect obedience to your law, who gave his body for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for our better shepherd, for the satisfaction that comes from eating true food, and for the hope of the resurrection. Amen. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains
precious blood of Jesus Christ was shed for you. In the same way, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death on your behalf until he comes. Take and drink. Lord, we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus Christ that removes all our guilty stains. Thank you for the new covenant, for peace with God, and for peace with one another. Please help us to walk in that peace until the day you come again. Amen. Let us stand and join our hearts in responding to our Savior's call. Come and die. The Savior calls, come and die. The Savior calls, eat and live. We will sit at Jesus' table. We will sit at Jesus' table. Yes, can you picture it? Drink and thirst no more. For he has a table spread with a saint of God.
and a glorious sound. Well, I'll leave you with an illustration as Chase was talking. I'm thinking, let us not go from this place drinking from the cup of political drama or social unrest, but let us drink from the cup of peace, peace that passes all understanding because it comes from Christ. And let us pass that cup to others that they might also drink and live. Amen. Amen. Well, you all know the drill. We're not going to have ushers uh, dismiss you. And you also know the whole social distancing mask wearing drill. So uh, we're going to trust you. So feel free to hang out in the parking lot. Feel free also to mingle in here a little bit. We'd ask that you'd social distance, but we don't have another service coming in. So feel free to uh, say hi to the person around you. Greet them in the name of the Lord. And let us uh, anticipate regathering Sunday. Go in peace. You're dismissed.